The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Coming up a little later in the pod, Greg Evans will tell us how Aston Villa held firm to sign Philippe Coutinho. And we'll talk to Adam Leventhal about Watford's new boss, Rob Edwards, who is going to have a lot of work to do after their relegation to the Championship. First up, the focus is Leeds United, who are now outside of the Premier League drop zone. But rivals Burnley and Everton both have games in hand before they all play their last game this weekend. I'm joined by the Athletics' Phil Hay. You're sort of um, mystic, Phil, aren't you, really? Your, your tweet from November of last year, this season is going to kill everyone. Yeah, so when I came out of the crown yesterday, somebody said to me, you know how they've started talking about the possibility that, that one day a person will live to a thousand years old. Well, it's not going to be any of us. I mean, the, the weird thing about yesterday is that we've we've seen that several times this season. It felt just like the, the Joe Gellhart game against Norwich. Um, it was as desperate as that moment. It, it felt as urgent as that moment. And I think the fact that we have been here before tells you how hard it's been for Leeds to get themselves out of this, how deeply they've sunk into it, because they are still clinging to 92nd minute goals. They are still clinging to anything from anywhere to drag them out of it. And I don't know. I mean, that that point yesterday, it, it might just save them. It might just be enough. And I think that was the feeling coming out of the ground it's probable that they will need more, and I don't think they can they can rely on Burnley losing these these next two games. But even so, it was a massive moment at a point where I think even the crowd who've been really supportive all season, even they had pretty much given up hope. Is it a season defined by desperation? Then I think it is, um, and it's it's been building right from the start. That, somebody tweeted a couple of weeks ago that scene from Austin Powers where they run over the security guard with the steamroller starting from about 100 metres away. And and it does feel like that. It's it's not that everybody saw this coming in the summer, but when you start to piece together now the things that have gone wrong and the the, the, the areas in which it's failed, it's absolutely everything. It, it is the recruitment. It's the form of individual players. It's the tactics not working for Bielsa in the way that they had previously. It's the small squad size exacerbated by the, the injuries. Everything has just come together, this accumulation of pressure that's left them clinging on. And that's how it was yesterday. I mean, the paint yesterday was owed to Danny Welbeck for that missed yeah. header with a couple of minutes to go because that was an absolute sitter. And if that goes in, it's game over. And I think the stadium becomes even more volatile than it had become. And and it was, it was getting toxic yesterday, not quite for the first time this season, but almost for the first time this season. There was chanting against the board. There were, there were chants for Bielsa. It was just that kind of frame patience, that loss of patience, which always comes inevitably in a season like this. But then, as, been, as has been the case for Leeds all season, that strike goal comes right at the end and, and suddenly everybody can see a way out of it. Where do you think Leeds fans are with Jesse Marsh? Uh, there's certainly a, a debate there without any question. I mean, the, the whole point of Marsh coming in for Bielsa at the time when he did, at the end of February, was that Leeds had, had lost faith in Bielsa. They thought they were going down. They didn't think by retaining him they, they had much chance of staying up. So it was a decision that was supposed to keep them in, in the Premier League. And it wasn't as if he had a huge number of games, but he had 12, and, and 12 seemed to everybody to be enough if if his tactics clicked and, and his system took hold. I think at the, the problem at the moment is that you're not seeing a style of play develop. And, and if anything, Leeds are stuck between 
the old Bielsa system and, and whatever it is that Marsh wants his system to be, they haven't completed that transition at all. And we've seen multiple different formations. We've seen three at the back. It was almost five at the back against Chelsea. It was 4-2-3-1 yesterday. You've had Rodrigo in the team, out the team, Matthias Cleek in the team, out the team, struggling really to fall on a, a specific plan that works and, and works consistently. And it would be very fair to say that a large portion of the crowd are, are pretty unconvinced by this. I think the argument that Leeds would make is that once he has a transfer window and they they kind of rectify a squad that is quite clearly inadequate. I mean, the, the bottom line this season is that the squad has, has just not been good enough. Once he has that, once he has pre-season, this could and, and should all look, look different. But I, I think at this stage, there's certainly scepticism about whether or not this has been the right decision. And it's interesting you mentioned transfer window because obviously one of the big criticisms aimed at Leeds, and we've had this discussion on this pod before, is... Well, they didn't do anything in the last transfer window to help. So their philosophy will change in this transfer window, will it? I think it's going to have to. As you tend to get with clubs when they do badly, there's always an argument about investment and has there been enough money spent. I, I don't think you could level that at Leeds and saying that they haven't spent. They've, they've invested about £150 million and And in the last two years... They haven't used player sales to fund that. You know, they haven't used Phillips, they haven't used Rafinha, although, you know, conceivably both of them could go this summer, depending on what happens. Uh, but they haven't, you know, they haven't used players going out to, to fund players coming in. The, the issue has been the impact of that recruitment. So few of the, the more expensive signings, Rodrigo being an example, just haven't paid off as, as they should have done. Uh, and it means that you've got the, the core of the championship squad, which came up, which is aging and, and to some extent will need to be phased out as you go, combined with players who've come in and, and who, who just haven't haven't done it for them. And you're right. I mean, nothing happened in January. They, they did bid for Brendan Aronson at RB Salzburg, but they, they didn't get him. And there was this inertia where they were caught in, the, in a scenario where the club seemed to realise that they needed players. And when he spoke to Bielsa, he would say, yeah, you know, I, I would accept players if we could if we could find them. But a lot of the players who were suggested to him, he wasn't keen on. He didn't think they would fit. They, they didn't they didn't go for any of them in the end. Players like Van der Beek, um, Harry Winks, because they couldn't get Aronson, it, it just drew a blank. And and it felt as if at that stage, you know, to, at, at the end of the window, there were a lot of public expressions of confidence in the squad. You know, we've got enough to stay up. We think we, we will be fine. But then three weeks down the line, three, four weeks down the line, you're sacking Bielsa and you're saying we, we don't think he's going to do it. And I think, as I say, I think it has been inertia. I think to an extent towards the end, you had a scenario where the tail was wagging the dog rather than, than the other way around. And I think when we look back, we'll say that doing nothing in January was a, was a big mistake. And actually, if the club didn't have confidence in Bielsa at the end of February, they should have been looking at it in that transfer window and saying, if we're going to do this, if a change does need to be made, is this the time to do it? If they stay up, the vultures will be circling won't they? If they go down, the vultures will be picking them off, won't they? Absolutely. Rafinha was on the pitch after the game yesterday, sat against the goalpost, and it was very much the body language of someone who looked like he was he was kind of looking at Ellen Road for the last time. He looks to me like Bielsa's gone, I need to go. Well, funnily enough, it wasn't all sweetness and light between those two towards the end. Right. Um, Rafinha was, was substituted at halftime in the defeat at Everton in February and they had they, they spoke the, the following week. They had words after training. Um, when I say they had words, they, they, they sat down and, and chatted it over. And then, you know, Bielsa, as he tended to do, he, he, he would always follow his own mind. So Rafinha was on the bench um, the following weekend against Manchester United. But he did play his best football here under Bielsa, without a doubt. And I think 
Rafinha's Rafinha's been player of the season with, with no question, and and you know the, the the pool of options in that regard is not massive. But you know he's scored a lot of the goals. He's carried leads more than than he should have should have had to do. And yesterday, watching him sat on the pitch, you, you did think that that was the body language of a player who won't be here for much longer. And actually, we all felt that anyway. There's been a huge amount of chatter about Barcelona. He is that standard of player. You know, he will go to a Champions League club. With Calvin Phillips, it's a little bit more difficult to tell. And the club have, have kind of been hopeful that they might pin him down to a new contract for one more year. They know that ultimately he's going to want to play at a higher level. But you're right. I mean, if, if they go down, Rafinha leaves, it seems to me impossible to persuade Phillips that that's good for his prospects, given that there's a World Cup coming up later in the year. And I think there'd be question marks about other players as well. I think the best players in the squad would, would like you say, would, would attract attention. People would wonder if they could if they could pay, the, pay them out of Ellen Road because Leeds will be in a position where they need to think about offers coming in and they'll also have players who would say to them, I, I don't particularly want to play in the Championship. So it is crucial in that respect. And others, you know, in, in terms of the longer-term planning with stadium development and everything else, they do need to be a Premier League club. But at least that point yesterday gives them half a chance. They do have their new hero in Gellhart, don't they? He's a terrific player. He really is. There was a huge amount of interest in him when he came from Wigan. And I mean, the the initial fee up front was less than a million pounds. And that was purely because Wigan were in administration. It was kind of fire sale time. So you were getting him at a fraction of of the value that, that he's actually worth. And I spoke to somebody who knows him really well, who said, you know, I would have put my mortgage on him being worth 10 times as much in the space of a year. He's He's just got that. A lot of people compare him to to Rooney, he's a Merseyside lad. He's, he's got that kind of same physique as Rooney, quite stocky, quite, you know, quite well built. And he's just got that kind of playground edge to him, you know, that street football edge to him where he does ridiculously good things in, in circumstances where you kind of don't think a player of that age or that inexperience should be able to do it. And it was just magical that a little bit. It was a kind of strange goal because you had Urente, a centre back, in a position that he shouldn't have been making a really difficult pass that he shouldn't have made. And then Stroik, who hardly ever scores goals, heading it in. But in the middle of that, you've got exactly the, the sort of guy who who you want in, in those circumstances teeing the cross up. You're going to be all right this week? I would have thought so. I, I said to I said to my editors this morning, I don't really know what to write. <laughs> it's kind of like last week on last week on on repeat. I mean, there will be there'll be a hell of a lot of finger crossing going on because I don't think anybody will expect Leeds to take a great deal from Brentford. It's a winnable game, without a doubt, but Brentford have a lot about them and, and have always had a lot about them that, that can trouble Leeds and, and bother Leeds with, it, with their style. And in between that, you have Burnley away at Aston Villa and then Burnley at home to, New, uh, to Newcastle on, on Sunday, which they could conceivably get something from. It, it doesn't feel like this is done, put it that way. I don't know why I'm doing this, because you're not playing, but good luck. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, we've needed it. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us.
Well, a draw at the weekend means a top half finish for Aston Villa is unlikely, but the big news to come out of the club has been the signing of Philip Coutinho on a permanent deal. Greg Evans covers Villa for The Athletic and joins us now. How much was this in the end? So it was €20 million, Euros, um, around about £17 million, which was a slight reduction. That's unbelievable, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? How on earth have they managed that? Yeah, very good question. Uh, I think, well, Barcelona, first and foremost, wanted to get the, you know, the money into their accounts for this accounting year. So they wanted to get the deal done before June 30th. Villa had agreed an initial £33 million transfer fee with Barcelona when Coutinho came on loan in January but they were able to get it down to just 17 million, which for me, I think is incredible business. That's a 50% discount. It's <laughs> <Indeed. laughs> a 50% discount on a player that they've had for six months. Indeed, as well. Yeah. I mean, it just shows really, doesn't it? How desperate Barcelona were to get him off the books. We, we, we were well aware of Barcelona's desperation to move him on and get his wage bill um, off, off the books when he moved in January. But yeah, it just shows, doesn't it? Uh, incredible, really, to think that he was a, a £108 million player just a few years ago. Is that Christian Perslow then? Yeah, Christian Perslow is the the main negotiator at Aston Villa. He will have driven a very hard bargain and would have been able to get this deal done. But yeah, I think it. I think a lot of credit does go to Villa for managing to get this deal over the line. But I think also the desperation from Barcelona to move him on should also be factored in. And presumably, now they've got that down, that gives them more wriggle room this summer, doesn't it? I mean, they've invested heavily in this squad over recent transfer windows. And would you expect them to go again this summer? Yeah, I think so. I wrote a piece this morning just saying how they have been quite calculated really with some of their transfers in recent times there was a need to get a defensive midfielder in probably the last two windows but Villa decided that because the deals weren't right for them at the time they were prepared to wait for a little bit longer so Calvin Phillips was a player that Villa had been long interested in um, failed to get him I think in 2018-2019 if Leeds do go down you know as we've just heard on the podcast um, then Villa will be <laughs> Villa will be in for him again. Um, whether you know they can whether they can get that deal over the line remains to be seen, and and, and obviously lead situation all um, depends on that anyway. But there are a, there are a handful of players that Villa have looked at in defensive midfield. Eves Bissouma of Brighton was a player they bid for in January, but again they weren't prepared to pay over the odds for him because he he was coming into his final year of his deal from this summer so that would make potentially a deal um, cheaper this summer and also Bubakar Kamara um, of Marseille a player again coming um, towards the end of his contract over in France and somebody who will be probably the best freebie on the market this summer Is that because they think they might lose Douglas Louise? Is that because they're not happy? Is that to is that to rotate a bit more? I mean it's interesting isn't it actually because the balance of the Villa midfield going forward Will be fascinating if you throw Coutinho in there as well uh, and John McGinn to uh, Buendia, depending on where Buendia is going to be used and, and the formations. They've, they ha- there are actually quite a few questions around Villa's midfield and formation. There are, yeah. And I mean, you know, th- there's Morgan Sanson also in there and, and Jacob yeah. Ramsey, who, who, who's developed this year. So, and Carney Chukwameka, you know, a young player who Villa have high hopes for. So there's, there's, there's six players there in, in midfield already. Um, Marvellous Nakamba, who played at the weekend, yeah. has come back from, from injury. Um, Villa will have to move on some of these players, you know, th- there's no way they can continue 
stockpiling players in, in this area and not using them. They, they need to find some value in them and move them on. Um, and that will hopefully free up funds to, to get a proper defensive midfielder. In. What I would say is that other than Nakamba, who has his shortcomings, you know, we've seen over three seasons now, he's a very hit and miss player. He, he, mm. he does the defensive side of things quite well but he struggles a little bit technically and, 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 and moving the ball out of, of defensive midfield. Um, Villa haven't really ever had a, a solid defensive midfielder that can do a bit of everything. Douglas Luiz, as, as you first mentioned there, for me, looks better in a more advanced midfield role in sort of a number eight um, and, and struggles a little bit defensively. So I just think Villa need to really get that tried and trusted performer in there. Um, you know, a, 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 a plug-in and play player, somebody who would just come in and, and make that team better. And that's what they're looking to do. Given sort of Gerard's success in attracting Coutinho, and obviously there's a there's a playing relationship there, are, are Villa in any way changing some of their targets because they now believe they have a, a manager who can attract... El- I don't, do you know, what? I'm not trying to be detrimental to, to to past managers or past players, but do they feel they have more of a figurehead to to attract the best? A hundred percent. And let, let's get it right. If it wasn't for Gerard, there's no way this Philip Coutinho deal would have happened. Um, and, and what I forgot to mention also was that, that Villa did include a 50% sell-on clause. Um, with Barcelona for, for Coutinho. So he signed a four-year deal. If he does move on in those four years, um, Barcelona will get 50% of whatever Villa move him on for. And look, Stephen Gerrard said this week that he still believes Coutinho's in his prime. So, you know, there might be still a, a couple of good years left in him and potentially a bit of money going back to Barcelona in that direction. But yeah, look, v- Villa know that Stephen Gerrard can attract better players. It, it's it's one of the reasons why he was given the job. Um and the Coutinho deal proves that. Expectations will change, won't they, for next season? I mean, we looked at uh, the teams who are between 8th and 13th on Sunday's match of the day too. They all played yesterday and I asked the pundits, you know, who's going to push on next season out of, you know, from Wolves in 8th and it includes Brentford and Brighton and Leicester and Palace and Villa are in 13th. Villa are the the last of all those clubs and they, they both went Villa. They both expect Villa to push on. So expectations in externally and internally, I'm guessing, will be very different next season. Yeah, I think next season is the one that Villa really need to get much closer or if not into the top seven. You know, the the, the hope is to get European football as soon as possible. Um, that the um the not expectation, but the hope again internally was that Villa would have got a little bit closer this season. And I think if you speak to supporters and they look at the 13th place position, just say, for example, Dean Smith was still in charge and you ask Aston Villa supporters, would you change um, this summer to try and get a manager in who will help the club get closer into that top half? And I think a lot of them would have said, yeah, let's give it a change. But it's not that easy and it just shows how hard it is to break that gap. Villa have got a lot of catching up to do. You know, it was only three years ago they were in the in the championship and I think what they've been able to do in those three years and try and bridge the gap and become an established Premier League team again um, is quite admirable, but there's still a little bit work, of work to do and the expectation next season will definitely be to, to be in, in the top half at least and then pushing closer to the top seven. Cheers, Greg. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, let's end the pod by talking about Watford. The Athletics, Adam Leventhal covers the club, uh, relegated from the Premier League, of course, thrashed at the weekend. But maybe, maybe a glimmer of light with the appointment of Rob Edwards uh, as their new manager for next season. Although on the evidence of yesterday, on the evidence of the last few months, he's got a right job on his hands, hasn't he? Uh, yeah, just a bit. It's um, it was a bit of a circus at Vicarage Road against against Leicester City, and the, the 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 Watford hierarchy have got a lot of things wrong this season, and I've written about it, you know, pretty extensively over the last three years, to be honest, uh, on the Athletic, but in particular this season. But at least they've made one good decision, which is to to keep him out of it and not bring him in to adopt this this mm. awful performing side at the moment. And he, yeah, watched on from the crowd and and will be under no illusions as to um, the job that he's got to take on next season. Before we come on to him, I, I sort of, just on this current Watford, and, and I think it's really interesting when you work across all sorts of different media, you work with people and there's a Watford game on, and it might be on the TV or it might be on the radio or whatever. I've never known one side, one side's team sheet have to be referenced so much by pundits over the course of the season. And that's by people who know football, but they go, hang on a minute, who's that? <laughs> who's that? And and I wonder whether that is Watford's problem in a very basic nutshell at the moment. I think there's a certain degree of that, but maybe that is because a lot of a lot of people that are outside of the Watford bubble just, just find it very difficult to keep track of the club as a whole in general. Mm. So there's not really any identifying factors that you think, oh, well, that is, yeah, that is Watford. You know, I understand, you know, he's the captain. There is, there is no longer any, you know, Troy Deeney, which was, which was quite handy for people. He was the go-to guy because he was, you know, very much a, a talismanic figure. I, I do get that. And I think that especially, you know, the, the game against Leicester yesterday and the game against Everton, you know, post relegation being confirmed has really been the, the second string. And, there's been a whole sort of raft of players, some that have been injured, some that might not be that injured, and quite a few that are being wrapped in cotton wool because they're ready for the fire sale or they're being released on freeze because they've got release clauses and things like that. So, you know, the, the, the last two games have been very difficult to identify with. The the quality of the performances and, and the, the fact that so many players prior to that have been sort of, notable players, perhaps, you know, the likes of Musa Sissoko or Joshua King mm-hmm. or Ishmael Assar or Manuel Dennis, you know, they're players that people know, players that people might have picked in their yeah. fant- fantasy teams and things like that, but they just genuinely haven't clicked. They haven't been able to put a, a run of form together. And I think it goes higher than just simply being the players. I think it goes right to the top. I think, you know, the, the running of the club is is just... Is, is suspect at the moment and they need to change. They need to, they need to try and change that culture. Will they want to clear the decks for Edwards, part one? And part two, will they be able to clear the decks for Edwards? Well, I think there are some players that, that will definitely leave, so that will help. That will be a catalyst for, for change. Um, Ishmael Assar, Emmanuel Dennis, Musa Sissoko, uh, Joshua King, Danny Rose... Ben Foster, they are all leaving if the right people come along, obviously. And obviously that is, you know, the second part of your question, that someone needs to be able to come along. and They won't get anywhere near the money for SAR, for example, will they, that they would have done a year ago? No, 
But I think mm. that with that signing or that potential sale, I think that having seen him underperform so much this season, I think people will work out that this has been a particularly disrupted season out of his control, really. You know, obviously he picked up an injury, um, which was a significant knee ligament injury, then had to go to Africa Cup of Nations and, you know, had a successful time with Senegal. Then he came back meeting, a you know, another new manager. I think people might actually go, look, if we take him under his, our wing, I think there is a player there. And yes, they might get a cut price deal, but also they will be dealing with, with Gino Pozzo, who is shrewd, ruthless, whatever you want to call him in terms of player trading and things like that. So he will drive a hard bargain, but they do know that they have to sell. And yes, there will probably be a, a cut price deal there. But Gino Pozzo, as we've as we've said, you, you know, he he he's not gonna he's not gonna lie down and have his tummy tickled in this in this sort of negotiation. So they will want to drive the price up. The appointment of Rob Edwards appears to have given the Watford fan base quite a lot of hope, judging judging by the, the Watford fans that I have spoken to or, or or read comments from online. Before we look to the future, how did they go about getting him? And was it as devious as Forest Green Rovers are suggesting? <laughs> well, it's an interesting one. And I can understand Dale Vince, the, the Forest Green Rovers owner's frustration, because I think he feels like, look, we've had a really good season and maybe I deserved a bit more honesty. But there are always two sides to the story. And, and you're not going to jump ship if there isn't a ship there already docked and ready to sort of <laughs> deliver you off to somewhere else. So I can understand both sides of it. He's frustrated. Rob Edwards was, you know, wanting to feather his nest and make sure that, you know, he's he's sorted. So when push came to shove, that was the time to, to have the conversation. In terms of them wanting him, they'd obviously you know, had had the experience of two elder statesmen in, in Claudio Ranieri and Roy Hodgson. They knew that it was it was going south. They knew that the connection wasn't quite there with the, with the players, really. And they wanted to try and change direction. They've done it before. They've always, they've got this sort of pendulum swinging way of, of appointing head coaches from a grumpy one to a happy one, from an inexperienced one to an old one. They do it all the time. But hopefully this might actually change something, you know, actually putting some faith. I say this all qualified, obviously, um, putting some faith in a younger manager who has had some success and he has had success as well building his his coaching resume in the in the championship with wolves where he also played the majority of his career as well um he's also you know been on the staff with england and and things like that so it, it is a gamble obviously but they have paid a little bit of money which is which is a rarity for for watford and and yes it is a it's a window into the future just seeing someone new fresh faced on the pitch at uh, vicarage road against leicester was was just a, a little crumb of comfort after a horrendous season so that they're hopeful but you know there is hope and expectation on him as well which is going to be tough for him to deal with is he going into the same structure that the old one the grumpy one the happy one the <laughs> experienced one have all tried to work under or is it going into a structure that will be refreshed to maximise his talents? So if you look at other coaches that have been plucked from the England setup to then forge a, a managerial path, they've then got into a structure that has... Steve Cooper is a prime example, yeah. both at Swansea and at Nottingham Forest, gone into a structure where he's then been able to exploit his contacts to 
bring young players, young domestic players in? Is Rob Edwards going to be afforded that same opportunity? If a leopard will change its spots, then yes. But we know that that doesn't often happen. And I think that it will need a huge amount of introspection from someone who is not famed for that, i.e. Gino Pozzo, someone who's very stubborn. Some people might call him arrogant, being quite detached, even though he's very, very hands-on. I think it needs a change in approach. He needs to listen and accept that this way of doing things is not working. And he's got a very, very strong body of work over the last three seasons from that initial relegation to now bouncing back up, but in a very strange season with, with COVID. And then this season, which is Watford's worst season in the top flight, going all the way back. You know, they haven't spent much time in the top flight, but this is their worst season. So there needs to be some sort of change. Otherwise, it will literally just be like chucking a, a tree into a shredder again. Look, there goes another one. There goes another one. It has to change. If it doesn't change, ultimately, it will only be Gino Pozzo that suffers. And his asset will com- com- continue to diminish in value. And he has to accept, he has to accept that the, the structure has to change. It's not going to happen overnight. But I think the one thing that, that Rob Edwards can do is come in with a, with a, with a fresh a fresh outlook in the way that he approaches things, in the way that he can get his players on board. And he will just hope for less interference from above. And if he gets the results, that naturally happens. It, the, the interference comes when, when Gino starts to get a little bit worried and a little bit tetchy about things. And, you know, he, he gets tetchy quicker than most, <laughs> most people. But, well, well, yeah, and, that, and that's yeah. the problem, isn't yeah. it, Adam? Because this is a big yeah. job. This is a big job with a fractured squad, with a lot of people going. It's a club that needs a reset and a rebuild. And, you know, if, if Watford are seventh come the start of October, that's not necessarily a bad start for Rob Edwards, given the, given the starting position. But the owner might very well think they ought to be top two. Yeah, I agree. That may that may well happen. And that will most probably be the, um, the view from the top. But this time around, if there is another sort of early fracture in the relationship, if there is signs of progression, if there is a change, if there is better football, if there is some blooding of youngsters going on in the side at that time, the fans' ire is not really on the dugout anymore. It's sometimes on the players that may be disenfranchised, disillusioned, but it is all focused on the top now. And that is where, you know, if you are, if you are saying publicly, not him personally, but the Chief Executive Chairman Scott Duxbury saying things publicly, now it is, it's accountability time. If you don't then deliver, then the, the fans will will rise up ultimately. And, you know, hopefully it doesn't get to that point. And hopefully Watford will have enough quality to, to be competitive up right up at the top of the championship. But, yeah, it's, it's a hell of a lot of work that Rob Edwards has got to do. But I think that he's going to have the fans backing, even if it is going to take a little bit of a little bit of time. Just one interesting thing. It's interesting that Brendan Rodgers, he actually got his first start in management at Watford. And I actually spoke to him in an interview way back and he said, I tried to change the style of football. And I remember a passage of play. We were playing against Doncaster. There was four passes and the fans after A.D. Boothroyd were getting a bit worried. They were thinking, oh, why are they passing the ball so much? We're going to be back there again. He's going to try and change the style of football. And the Watford fans, hopefully this time around, they won't get worried and they will keep faith. 
but also they will also have one eye on, on Gino Pozzo up in that director's box and saying, look, come on, come on, you need to change too. That's it. If you want to read more on all of the stories we've discussed today on The Athletic, you can subscribe now for just a pound a month. Head to theathletic.com slash football pod. And I'm back on Thursday on this feed with Matt Slater for the Business of Sport pod. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.